You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to the Pratt Library and our Writers Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and this evening it gives me great pleasure to introduce one of our scholars, change agents, and our miss, Dr. Lamar Darnell Shields. Dr. Shields is a social entrepreneur, inspirational speaker, and educator who loves to create and build with purpose. As a co-founder and senior director of education and innovation at the Cambio Group, Dr. Shields has dedicated his life to inspiring adults and youth alike to pursue a higher purpose, achieve sustainable value for long-term success, and cope with adversity in order to create opportunities in their personal, professional, and spiritual lives. This bilingual author, master teacher, public speaker, social entrepreneur, and thought leader is a dynamic presence who has appeared on NPR, ABC, NBC, CNN, and BET. Now leave me letters out in the alphabet. Uh, KFC. And KFC. <laughs> and is according to University of Maryland Baltimore County's president, Dr. Freeman Wabowski, quote, a courageous visionary leader with boundless energy and an indelible message of hope in the midst of adversity, unquote. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lamar Shields to the Pratt Library. I said, before, before we begin, I just want to take about a minute just to us to just get in the space uh, 49 years ago, we lost a great man, uh, Dr. King, in Memphis, Tennessee. And for the last year, I've been working with his personal barber, along with my good friend Darius Wilmore, uh, uh, a guy by the name of Nelson Martin. So I just wanted to take a minute uh, and just, just a moment of silence and respect and honor for this great man, this great man of cloth, this great man of, 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 of peace, uh, this man, this great orator. So we're just going to take a, a minute just to. Uh, Think about his life. And so, um, first of all, I want to just thank uh, the library uh, for allowing me to be in your space. For those who don't know me, I'm originally from Chicago, grew up in Chicago, grew up in Puerto Rico, went to college in Mexico, traveled all over the country. And um, when I first moved here in the 90s to become a teacher, I always had this vision that I would drive down the street, I believe in speaking things into existence. And I remember just driving past the library, I thought this was a beautiful library. And I said, one day, um, I want to be a speaker in this library, but beyond I want to have my photo on the outside 
as you as you're driving past. And so my art director, a good friend of Darius Wilmore, called me on the phone. He said, yo, man, you made it behind the glass. And I'm like, I don't know what this dude talking about. I'm like, what glass? You in a black neighborhood where you can't you gotta buy stuff through the glass? I don't know what glass he's talking about. So he takes a picture of, of, of me and then Misty Copeland right next to me. And, and so my mother just happened to be in town from Chicago. And I said, Ma, listen, we gotta roll downtown. There's a picture of me. I ain't need no handcuffs, it ain't a mugshot. We need to go see this thing. And so Darius, he thought I knew about the photo, and I didn't know about it. And so he would just send it to me because he was walking past. And so I drive down here, and I see this picture of me. You know, this little black boy who grew up on the south side of Chicago who had very humble beginnings, who, who fought, you know, fought his whole life going through this the third largest city, gang-ridden city. And then this one day, then I show up in the city, and I speak into existence that I'm, I'm going to be here. And I say that to share with you guys the possibility of believing in the words that you say. It's quite often we say we say stuff that's sort of counteractive. We say, I want to get good grades, but then we're like, yeah, I'm going here and fail this test. Or we say, yeah, I want to make a lot of money. Yeah, I want to be an entertainer, but I'm not going to make a lot of money. And it's sort of self-defeating. And so I'm just, I appear as a, as, a, as a testament of what can happen. Then I start seeing my friend Kevin Sheridan, Wes Moore, my mentor, you know, over here, another great mentor, a good friend of mine, Dr. Gill, who just did uh, this book signing here as well. I was just honored, just honored. And so for those that are interested, not only just writing, but just, just staying the course and really, really believing in the gifts that the Creator has given to you. And so I'm just grateful, and I want to thank you guys for allowing me to be in your space. Uh, I have been on a whirlwind tour, um, and it's been good. You know, it's been really, really good. And I'm going to share, share with you guys some of the intimate stories about me growing up in some of these strange cities across the country. I'm going to introduce you guys to um, a group of my friends. But I want to, want to start off with just a quick reflection uh, from one of the readers uh, who, who read the book. You got to listen to what she had to say.
where I can really talk to people intelligently. Um, so after reading the book, I am hearing the story and feeling it gave me the self-confidence now to where I feel like I can talk to anybody and um, discuss these issues in a way that will be helpful. What's it talk about? Um, but I'm, I'm a black woman, obviously. Um, and I know and understand that I have white privilege. On the other hand, I'm extremely compassionate. I'm very sensitive. Yeah, she, she really. I'm so sensitive. I've lived in all my life. You know, no good things happen there. Um, however, people like me who have seen this violence on TV happen to black people, it's devastating to us. I mean, we, we it's horrifying and we don't want to see it anymore. And so the, the people who I think would enjoy reading this are, the, are white people who care deeply and don't want to see this anymore. We have it. We're done. We don't want to see this violence anymore. We care. But we don't know what to do about it. So that's just a quick reflection. Um, and so I want to play this clip about can, the definition of something in, in our African uh, community. Something that is very difficult to read in English. It is, it is called Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Ubuntu is the essence of being human. And it says, a storytelling human being is a contradiction in terms. I can't be a human being on my daughter. I wouldn't know how to speak as a human being. I wouldn't know how to think as a human being. I wouldn't know how to walk as a human being. I have to learn from other human beings how to be human. And so Ubuntu, Ubuntu says, my humanity is bound up in yours. I am only because you are.
Now, when you looked at this video, tell me some words that sort of popped out to you guys. Some of the words that just popped out that came across the screen. Or some images that sort of popped out that came across the screen. Anybody? Hugging. Hugging. Free hug. Yes. Anybody else? Anybody else? Words to set out to you? Community. Community. So let me let me tell you about the scene before we go into the book. Um, when I started writing this book, because I love music, I said, man, it'd be dope to have a, a book and a soundtrack. Like Kobe said, man, you got a book and a soundtrack. I was like, man, I'm about to flip this thing. I said, I'm going to have a book and a soundtrack. So I was looking for a person who could do it. And Jay-Z wasn't available, so I was about to somebody else. Some of y'all missed that. Um, and so I reached out to one of my chaos brothers, son. I talked about what that means. And he's a young brother who went to Howard University. And his mother worked for Kip, and she's an exec. She's been working for Kip for years. And, 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 I, and I said, let me reach out to your son. I said, I need some music that's going to define the era that I grew up in. I said, but let me tell you something. He's a young brother. I said, let me tell you something. We 80s kids. We 80s and 90s kids. We were 70s piece in it. I said, so if you're going to write, if you're going to do some music, it has to have the flavor of when I grew up at that time. So all that trap music and all that nonsense, Sadiq that you listen to, we had to go to some other men to support my brother out back there. And I said, so, and he says, well, well, you know, calls me Nell, everyone calls me Nell, I'm talking about where that, where that comes from. He says, but I'm not, I don't have a good relationship with my father. See, Mark Quinn is who we call Baby K. He was the first, one of the, one, he was the first kid of chaos, I'm going to talk about that in a, in a second. So he's the very first child of my friends who was born. And so he, we, we sort of raised him as we were young boys, black and Latino boys growing up in Chicago. And he says, but I don't, have a good, I don't have a good relationship with my dad. I said, you know what, this is what I want you to do. So I'm going to send you a copy of the book. I want you to read our story. I want you to know the father that I know. I don't know who the dude is right now, your father, but I want, I want you to know the guy I grew up with. I don't know what he's going through now. I said, I want you to read this story. Then I want you to take all the pain that you're feeling about him and all the joy and stuff that you read here, and I want you to write it. Four songs, because the book is broken up into four chapters. And when I got this music, I could feel his pain. But his father called me in tears in Chicago last Christmas. We did our book signing in Chicago. and said, man, I just want to thank you for allowing my son to be a part of this project. Because he called me with more questions about me growing up. He said he had a whole lot he wanted to know about what was it like growing up in Chicago in the 80s and you guys you know, went to these private schools and, but you guys had to connect to gang communities and all this. How was that? And he, he was in tears and I said to my buddy Mar Maurice I said man I just want you guys just to work on whatever you're working on. And you could hear it in his song when he's talking about Mbutu he's talking about us growing up in Chicago and when you listen, when you start to read the book and you, and you listen to the music you're really going to see the connection. And so before I go any further, I always have to honor the fallen. I want to go through and show you four brothers who died while I was growing up. This is in my living room right here. And you guys, if you grew up in the 80s, you know about y'all. What, what is this right here? What is he wearing? Starter Jack. Castle getting killed in Chicago over Starter Jack. And I, I'm sure in Baltimore also. Somebody broke in my boy's car because our school was in the project so I had a I had a Lincoln Star jacket, the gold one, and then I had a 49, I had a, um, 
uh, uh, New York Giants. The reason why the New York Giants is I remember seeing the movie School Days, about to go somewhere. My man Dwayne Wayne was right. That's why when we say, kid, you know, our media influences our kid, we were the same way. Because I wouldn't have got no New York Giants, Jack, because I wasn't a New York fan. And I got it and somebody stole it out of the car. So my buddy Andre O'Neill, this brother didn't even cross the stage graduation. His little brother had an acceptance. He had to accept his diploma. Andre went to one of the largest schools in Chicago, uh, CBS High School. So Andre was the first one to die. Then my best friend, this is my ride or die. You see what he's wearing? That's that KC. You know, it's all the colors. That KC was our sign. You know, some people say it's that Kansas City Royals. In Chicago, it was the chaos crew. And so this was my ride or die. Whenever you saw me, you saw Curtis. This was at one of our famous, famous Memorial Day cookout. We were known for having the best Memorial Day. Let me tell you, if you were a girl that grew up in the 80s, you would have been rolling with us. Andre, you can go. I see you. Like your type too. I'm you know I'm You've been part of the crew, part of the posse. The third brother to die uh, is Karoy, and then my good brother Derek. Now, what's interesting about all four of these guys, each one of them transitioned at a very important time in my life. And I didn't realize that until I started writing the book. Andre died. Andre was a junior. He was a car, we called them the juniors. So they were a year behind us. We were the seniors and juniors. When I went to, to Grand State University, I got that first call, Andre had died. When I moved to Baltimore to become a teacher, when I was getting an education, Curtis had died. When I, when I started working and living in Mexico, I got to call Karoy had died. And then when I got married and started having, having my own family, then Derek died. And what's interesting about this dude, Derek, he got a chance to hear me speak. I was speaking in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Urban League Conference, and I'll never forget, he was in the back of the room, and after everybody left and I finished talking, and he just looked at me and just shook his head like, man, I can't believe that shit. This is what he says. It reminded me of, you saw the movie Malcolm X, when Malcolm X made this transition, and Spike Lee, Shorty, Shorty walked into him like, man, I love his hustle, man, I'm loving it. I'm loving this hustle. I'm trying to see y'all ain't laughing because y'all ain't got to see the movie. But this was Malcolm X's board when he was selling dope and all this. And Malcolm changed his life. And Shorty was like, man, I'm loving this hustle. This is a good way to make some money. It was women in the mosque. He was trying to come up. And Derek looked at me and he shook his head because he had never seen that part of me. He had never seen me do, do what I do because he only knew me as a, as a, as a, as a teenager. He didn't see the transition. Some of y'all just getting that spike when you move that Y'all go slow. We're going to keep it Y'all go slow. And so I decided that I wanted to talk about my crew chaos. It was interesting what we didn't even know growing up that when my buddy Steve came up with the name, and we'll get into it, that the four of these letters, K-A-O-S, are connected to four, the four largest black fraternities. Kappa, Alpha, Omega, and Slippercock. He OG, OG right there, OG, Omega. He don't go by Q, he Omega man. And so, chaos, we didn't even realize that, that our name was connected to this panelistic council. And so this was our crew right here. What y'all know about that wood paneling in the background? We're going to keep it moving. Here, here are some other photos. As you can see, we wore our KC hats everywhere. My mother hated it. This, this is prom my mother like, you're not about, that's my buddy Steve, you're not about to wear no okay. Yes, I am, Mom. I'm going to rock my KC hat. We had to let people know. And that's sort of how we roll. And so I decided that I wanted to share our story. It says, if I'm honest with myself, 
chaos destroyed so much. If you think about the word chaos, we're playing on the term C-H-A-O-S. We were smart and hopeful, but we were also at times destructive in our younger years. I caused my mother and a lot of people who loved me a lot of grief. Chaos by nature tears down and decimates. At some point, I realized, though, that I needed to start building and rebuilding. That the only way I could go back home would be if I had some healing and hope to offer. See, some of us go back home the same way we left. And I didn't want to go back to Chicago the same way I left Chicago. And so I decided that let me share the story of these guys. And it made sense for me when I was sharing, sharing with my wife, Michelle, when I said to her, I said, I'm the most qualified writer. And she thought I was being arrogant when I said it. But I was there from the beginning. It's like, it's, it's like Dr. Gill, who has a history to Omega because of his dad. You know, he was qualified to write that story because he was there. I remember when the name first came out. And so I, was, I felt that I was qualified to sort of write this story. And then so let's just get down to it. What's interesting about the book, because I'm a lover of hip-hop music, every chapter starts out with a hip-hop poem. And one guy who I'm loving more and more is Big Sean. And Big Sean said, I'm just doing better than what everybody else projected. Knew that I'd be here, so if you ask me how I feel, I'm going to just tell you, it's everything I expected. Bob, tell me about the photo again. His six-year-old eyes look up at me, expecting me beautiful in their wonder and constant inquisitiveness. This inquiry from my son, Mosiah Sekou, whose name means anointed learner, isn't unusual. You see, he frequently asked me about how I felt at his age and what I did. Baba, do you miss your father? And how did you feel when your dad died? And when you were young, what did you think life would be like as, as an adult? And what does it take to win? And why are so many people? Why are people so mean to us? And why are there bad people in the world? And what was it like growing up without a dad? And are there TV shows out now that were out when you were young? And how does it feel to be the youngest in your family? And what were you allergic to when you were younger? And how does it feel when there are crowds of people waiting for you to speak? Just recently, his mother wanted him to spend time with his two sisters. And he told her that he's so glad he has a dad who knows what it feels like to be a boy. Because he wasn't trying to roll with them that day. When my wife, Michelle, recounted this to me, it reinforced in me the importance of of, of me telling my story, which is a real sense in my son's story. See, in a way, this entire book is a letter to my son, Mosiah, filled with all of my memories that I hope one day he'll understand. Memories of what it was like when I was a boy. Memories of a childhood that was, was complex but not hopeless. I know there are things he might not fully comprehend until he's older, if at all. And I'm mostly okay with that. Growing up in a two-parent household in a middle-class Baltimore neighborhood as a vegan, his two-day experiences look a whole lot different from mine. And he's unique in his own right. He's more talkative than I was as a child. People don't realize that. I, I get paid to talk now, so it's different. Y'all miss that, too. Um, he's more talkative than I was as a child. He doesn't know what it's like to grow up in a fatherless house. He loves school. He cares about looking good. He's not a sickly kid like I was his age. In other ways, though, I see myself in him every day. He's introspective like me. He doesn't want to see people suffer. He's very well liked among his peers, and he loves sports. He has a lot of friends and will try anything without hesitation. And like me, he questions everything. And I mean everything. What I do hope he understands this complexity of the struggle and wonder of growing up as a young man of color in America. I hope he recognizes all the work that I've done throughout my career with black and Latino boys 
has been both an attempt to understand myself better and also a way to pave a different future for him that he might not otherwise be existed. I hope he sees the congruence in my life and my work and recognize at the same time that I'm pouring into him, I'm also pouring into all the young men that look like him. I want there to be no gray areas. I want my life and work to make sense to him. It's hard for me to be separate who I am from what I do. And I hope that he learns that there's beauty in this sometimes difficult struggle of caring so much. And I hope that my work is a reflection of what he sees and what he sees when he looks at that picture of himself he asks about so often. Opportunity, optimism, and a belief in a future that is right. The following question, the one Mosiah asks me about frequently is immortalized in a moment in my life that I'll never forget. You see, I'm standing in a threshold, looking in, the room seems foreboding to me. But seeing the young man Seeing the young boy holding a shiny red apple in his hand, looking up with wonder at the man kneeling down in front of him, you would almost think with these matching blazers, suits of patriotic red that they had gotten dressed together, and even commemorating a photo of the moment that hangs in my home, the wonder, trust, and excitement so transparent on the boy's face. The boy is then my three-year-old son, and the man is the 44th president of the United States. They're in the Oval Office, and I can't help but wonder. How could a boy like me, from the south side of Chicago, with the rocky past, end up here? With our president, a man who looks like us, a man who knows the challenge of having a large amount of melanin in his skin. I mean, these things just don't normally happen to kids who came from where I did. How did I get here? How did we get here? My, want, my mind wanders, and I know that there's a reason for it all. But putting the pieces of the story together, connecting the dots from my childhood to here is going to make going to take some work. But before we go back to where it all started, let's go back to the day at the White House. A day that was quite a journey. Look at him standing out there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my beautiful daughter right there in the background. I'm raising hands die. And that's my other daughter who you can't see behind her big sister. And so this day meant a lot to me because if you know anything about the president, he didn't have a relationship with his dad. He met his dad on, on one, one time. And the second time, which is very similar to Jay-Z, the second time he went to go see his dad, his dad had died. And so this is a historic photo. I showed this photo as a reminder to children who look like my kids, but then also to my own son to remind them the greatness, the presence that he's in. But the story is interesting because right behind here is the Oval Office. And what happened was my son, Mosiah, who really wasn't supposed to be invited there, but my wife was like, we all go. He was really supposed to be Messiah and myself. But my wife was like, listen, you got three. It's, it's five of us going. And I said, don't mess this up, Michelle, boy. We just invited the two of us. And she, you know, being a sister, she got us in there. All of us in there. And so the, what's interesting about the story this photo is a part of the archives of Barack Obama right now. Mm -hmm. And so Pete Souza, the White House photographer, took this photo, but right behind this, this behind my son, this is the woman who got us into the White House. She wrote the article and was interesting. Barack Obama read the article and then decided he wanted to invite a group of black and brown kids into the White House. And so that's how we that's how we got there. So from Green Street to South Michigan. Peace before everything, God before anything, and real before everything, home before any place. 
At 14 years old, I did the same thing every day. I got up at 6 a.m., brushed my teeth, washed my face, and, and took time to make sure my fresh cut was still tight. I had never should have pulled out the hall. I put on my Ralph Lauren polo button-down shirt, tan slacks, and entered to the dress code of Diaz Institute and made sure my tie was tucked away in my 85 portfolio before heading downstairs to the kitchen for breakfast. Unlike most kids, I knew I ate grits instead of cereal because I was allergic to milk. And once I scraped the bowl clean, I grabbed my Sony Walkman and my hip hop and house tapes and was out. I gotta stop right there, real quick. Did you all just see this piece that they just did with a group of kids, a group of older folks who gave little kids these Sony Walkman? Y'all didn't see that? They put a group of kids, we talking about that, put a group of kids in the room and they gave these kids a Sony Walkman and the kids like, what you want me to do with this? It's like my daughter when I was in the car, we had a rental car, and she was like, Bob, it's hot in the car. And I, you know, they know I'm, I'm balling on the button. So I was like, listen, we ain't, get, we ain't getting all the bells and whistles. I said, roll the window down. She said, how am I supposed to roll the window down? I said, just like that. She ain't going to do with that little thing right there. So my home at 7914 Green was situated the legendary south side of Chicago. Green Street was extremely close to the community, was surrounded by, the, by some serious gang activity, but had strong police officers in my community. Activists on our block who served and sort of a buffer against the outside world. Our block was especially protected by four police officers who lived there. Officers, Officer Panman, Martin, and Lemon. I got Brad on my man. Officer Panman is one of my kids, my best friend Steve Panman. He actually runs Beyonce's company. So if you ever see this dude on TV, that's his dad who was on our, on our block. There was a day that passed when I didn't see someone mowing the grass or gardening or making repairs under the hood. On our block, homeowners took great pride in their manicure lawns and didn't want us always making up, messing up their grasses by playing football. Our neighbors sat on their front porches, greeted everyone who walked, rode by, and didn't have a problem telling us to get off the street. You see, the South Side suffered from further devastation after the Civil Rights Movement. When a fluent African-American sees the opportunity to relocate into more ups and that upcoming community, leaving the poor and unemployed behind. So, in this particular chapter, I started to discover what I call educational inequity. My good friend, Willie, everybody got that one friend who, this dude was like, cock these, or I was a little dude. He was old school. Before, I don't know if they did this in Baltimore, but Willie had a body like a grown man. We were 14 years old. And he's like Cody, he's got the best on. He used to rock the vest like this, but with no shirt. <laughs> like this, this dude rocked the vest, no shirt, and the braids going back. And so what was interesting about Willie, Willie grew up in the project and then moved to Oxford. So we, we had to explain to him, oh boy, we done, whatever y'all did in the project, it only go down on the street. But he didn't really get some of that stuff. So every day, Willie and I had, had this routine. I don't tell you guys our routine. Because my wife called me from New York one day, and she said, I just saw some people jumping the turnstile, just like you used to do when you were growing up in Chicago. And I said, I mean, we used to do that all day. It wasn't no big deal. And so, so along the journey to Dunbar and Dila South, Willie and I talked about music girls, the next party that was jumping off the girls again. Sometimes we talked about school, and what we discovered when we spoke was that even though we lived in the same neighborhood, what we discovered that his education, my education was totally different. When I heard some of the stuff Willie was working on, I would stop and say, man, we way past that. Why are y'all so far behind? 
Willie could never under he could never answer the question, and neither could I. Looking back on it now, I don't think at the time I fully understood the weight of the question about education equities that we were facing in our respective neighborhood. Here, Willie and I were traveling the same neighborhood every day, same path, same bus, same mail. But when he went right and I went left, our education was totally different. And so Willie and I started to discuss this. And, and what, I, what I discovered is that once we have our youth become aware, I believe that our responsibility to help them deal with the onslaught of questioning, the similar questions I actually had, as our young people started to challenge the educational system. See, Willie and I didn't have the vocabulary, but I knew that my school was somewhat different from his school. And I would never say that his school was better and my school was worse or vice versa but I knew it was something that was totally different once we took that trip. Chapter two, everywhere we go, we let the people know that chaos is in the house. That was our theme song. Every party we walked in, it was 20 black and Latino Caribbean boys walking through, singing this song everywhere we go. We let the people know that chaos is in the house. And we were coming to these places, and everybody thought we were a gang. And actually, we're not a gang, but people call us a gang. What's interesting about this chapter, about chaos, when we started to form this group, it was really a group of protection. You know, we created this because our school was set in the housing project. And so, if you don't know anything about Chicago, we've always had the largest housing projects in the country. From 35th all the way to 22nd. Or 22nd, I mean, from 22nd all the way to 55th. And what was interesting about our school, Dr. Gill, it was right across the projects, and we would fight to get into the school because the kids in the projects would say, y'all need to think y'all better than us. So they would fight us. And so when I talk about cold switching with young people, I would always have to not wear my tie. I would have to let my pants slag a little bit. I would have to unloosen my jacket a little bit just to protect myself because either we were going to fight or we were going to run. And then we got into the building because we were the minority. The white kids would say the same thing. See, the black kids in the projects would say, niggas, y'all think y'all better than us. And the white kids in the school said, niggas, y'all don't belong here. Now, we're not talking about 1960. We're talking about the 80s. And so we never felt comfortable. As a young man of color, I remember not wanting to feel like I owned anyone, anything, especially white people. I also remember thinking about my exchange with Brother Tim. Now, Brother Tim is not a brother. He's a brother. Brother Tim. Not a brother, but a Catholic school Brother Tim, <laughs> I, I don't want anything to anybody, especially Brother Tim. But we were both really getting out of this interaction. See, in some ways, we were both being selfish. Brother Tim's interests were served through helping me because it gave him the satisfaction of doing his job well. Even if none of the other adults around him were stepping up to the plate then, then I was being selfish and that I so desperately wanted and needed to be helped. But even within this dynamic, I still questioned his motives so often. What do you want from me? Why are you going out your way to try to save me when I don't even deserve being saved? When I'm not even willing to save myself when I can't even get other adults who look like me 
Why do you care? The question often brought me to a painful place because I began to question who the real enemy was. I wanted to hate Brother Tim because he was white. But if I looked at it honestly, he was the only adult in the school building who was showing up day in and day out and trying to help me and others like me. And how could I really hate him? It often, make, it often takes a bit more self-reflection than when we're uncomfortable and want to recognize in ourselves and the stories of others. But if you're reading this as a change agent, my hope is that you're able to really reflect on why we do what we do. See, the issue that I had that many children of color that I come across with is that as we look at some white people who have this, we feel that they have the Satan mentality. But what I discovered that Brother Tim was somewhat different because there was no other person in that building. There was no other person of color who were coming after us. There were no custodians that looked like us. There were no custodians with even Spanish accent that looked like my brown brothers and sisters. And so Brother Tim was the one who fought for us. But because he didn't look like the person that I wanted to come from, I fought him on a daily basis. And so as I say to my young people that are there, the Calvary sometimes, when they come, they may not look like you. They might not have the same melanin in your skin, but they, if, they, if they're going to give you the assistance, then be willing to accept it. Where do we go from here? And just when it seemed that the game is hopeless, we arrange some things for a dose of dopeness. In this particular chapter, where do we go from here? My best friend Curtis's mother had just been killed. When 10th graders, Curtis was the only child. He found his mother outside in the car. You see, in chaos, we were boys just trying to figure out how to be men without the words to express ourselves. And then we were living in an environment where we were exposed to a lot of violence. This started chaos that created both stress and trauma in our lives. To compound the ongoing stress we felt when the first major tragedy, tragedy in many of our lives was Kurt's mom's death. Struck that there was nobody to help us work through it all. What's so perplexing to me, now looking back on the aftermath of Kurt's mom's death, is that no adult in our lives engaged us in much conversation around trauma. Nobody, not our parents, our teachers, our school counselors, had any means in place to help us process what we were experiencing. It affected us all because we were as close as a family and yet we were left out our own, on our own to try to figure this thing out. And we didn't have the skills we needed to do so. With all the trauma that I saw around me, I don't remember my own mother asking me how I felt. And I lived in a household where we talked and engaged with each other, where I was exposed to education and culture and the world. Yet in this particular arena area, I think that there was a great void that was left unfulfilled. And as a teacher, the question often becomes, how do I prepare myself for my students who are dying? There's no pedagogy class on this. The irony is that I was doing all of this fighting as a young youth and then not not too many years later, I found myself writing violence prevention manuals. I'm not saying that I was better prepared than anyone else, but I'll say having a personal and human connection to the work we do, whether from our experiences or from listening to and learning from others' experiences, 
is important because it gives us some humanity to connect to theories. Theories alone aren't going to save our children. And so what happened in this situation, I'll never forget it. When I started writing this book, I had to call all of my buddies on the phone because I had to do some research. This was one of the hardest chapters to write because I remember Curtis, I was the second person he called on the phone. He said, Nell, my mother just died. And I did what like most people say, man, stop playing this. It's a joke. Now, Curtis and his mom was just like this. He was an only child. This was, his, this, this woman meant the world for him and vice versa. So he calls me on the phone and says, my mother was just killed. I need you to meet me at my father's house. Now, this was a surprise to us because none of us ever heard him talk about having a father. It was always his mother. So we drive to this affluent neighborhood in Chicago called Beverly Hills. And was, we had never been in this particular community. And so we drive up to the house. And I remember there was a drive. This was the driveway. And this was the house. And I see Curtis's mother's car. And I remember Curtis telling me that his mother was killed in the car. And to this day, it still makes no sense. So the car that his mother was killed in was in the driveway of his father's house. And the five of us, at the time we called ourselves the original five, it was Curtis, Dion, Steve, Rich, and myself. Before chaos, we were 20, there were five of us. So I called everybody on the phone, and we go to the house, and I'll never forget, we walked past the car, and it was a burgundy grand dam with a with the, with the leather on together, they put these rolls in the front of them, they're like leather, they were like, you know, add some type of ambiance to the car, and I see a puddle of blood, and all of us walk past the car, and we all look, but we say nothing. Because, see, we don't have the vocabulary to talk about how it makes us feel. So, boys, we just shut down. And I remember looking at this and going in the house and just looking at Curtis. And I remember having a conversation and we were meeting his sisters. And so, fast forward, I then I had to call up my buddies. I said, I want to talk to you guys about this chapter because I want to know how you guys felt during that time. And I said, you noticed that when Curtis's mother died and went to the house, none of us said anything. 20 years, 30 years later, we never articulated how that made us feel to walk past this. And so I remember my mother, when she read this chapter, and she says to me, I did not know how much pain you were in. Even my own mother didn't have the vocabulary to communicate with me about how I was feeling. And so my buddies and I walked away and tucked that in. And so when I got them on the phone, you could almost hear tears in their eyes as I was talking to them about the situation. Because we didn't have the vocabulary to talk about how it made us. I remember just going to Curtis's house and just looking and not knowing what to say. And just looking. Because we knew that his world, and when we go further throughout the witch, we're going to see his world was about to get rocked. Because the mother who, who gave him everything. And because of Curtis, my goal was to go to Morehouse College, and we'll talk about sort of what happened with that. But nobody asked us about that. And so now you fast forward to schools, and then kids show up at schools, and nobody, nobody's having a conversation with them about trauma. And so our children are walking around with this pain in them. Even when folks come back from Iraq and all these wars, somebody debriefs them and has a conversation with them. With our children, it doesn't happen. And so now the chapter Chasing Curtis, which was probably the hardest chapter uh, to write uh, because, as I said, Curtis and I were always together. We all have that one thing that we've been chasing, that we always will be chasing our whole lives. Maybe it's a dream, maybe it's a, 
uh, unrequited love. Maybe it's a friend we left behind. As for me, the rest of my life, I'll always be chasing Curtis. I'm talking, of course, about Curtis, my best friend. Curtis, who shared my dream of attending Morehouse College. Curtis, who I left behind when I went away at Grand State University. Curtis, who couldn't win the battle against the poor of the Chicago streets and all the accompanying chaos. I'm talking about Curtis, who face I see when I look out to the auditorium of black and brown boys staring back at me, expectantly and loosely, a little uneasy, wondering if I'll have anything to say that matters. But when I talk about chasing Curtis, I'm talking about theory, a way of seeing the world that I've never been able to see, a way of approaching my Ubuntu teaching practice that colors everything I do. The thing about life is that we can't be chasing something unless we're running away from something else. Maybe that what we're chasing and running from are two of the same coins. Maybe it's the opposite ideal, or maybe they represent the best and the worst of who we are. You see, Curtis was my paradise. It felt like the more I, the more I evolved and became more completely myself, the further apart we grew. I had an increasingly difficult time coexisting in my two different spheres, my home in Chicago and that world that unfolded. Have you ever, so I'm gonna stop right there. And so I was, had just moved to Baltimore and I get a call from my buddy, Clarence in Atlanta that says, Curtis had just been killed. See, when Curtis's mother died, Curtis's mother worked for the Chicago Stock Exchange, left him with a whole lot of money. But what we discovered, that the first man, out the second person Curtis called about his mother dying, the first man he called was his mother's boyfriend, who showed up at the house, but what we discovered, the boyfriend was the one that actually killed his mother. So he showed up at the house and said, hey, what's going on? And they discovered, but let me take a step further, found out through my research, Curtis's, the guy that killed Curtis's mother was released after eight years because of overcrowding in Chicago jail. And so Curtis and I struggled when his mother died because Curtis started living a different lifestyle. And I knew he was into drugs, but I didn't know how much. I would be in a room with him and I would see what they would be doing. But he knew that was the world I wanted to go. But this was my God. That's where he was. That's where I was. And I know if I still lived in Chicago, what happened to him, I would have been with him. And so that's the people that you're going to grow apart from. But you got to love them from a distance. This was my man. I mean, we still love each other. But again, our lives are going in a different direction. And so I got the call to go to Chicago. And what happened was, but even before, you know, once I got the story, I had to, now I had to pick up the phone again and talk to my buddies. Let's talk about this Curtis situation. And so what happened, Curtis had a guy working for him, a guy named Houston, who, as a, Houston was much older than us. I mean, Houston was a man. Girls loved him. He could dance. I mean, this, this dude was, was, was everything to us. He was much older. Curtis had employed him. Houston, I had to call Houston on the phone to say, tell me what happened. So the story went like this. Curtis called him and said, hey, bring out, tell him to bring out some dope, basically. Houston said he noticed that Curtis's car was parked further down the street, which was strange. So Houston said he grabbed a bag, ran into the car, and he noticed he get, he's about to get into this black Jeep. He noticed that Curtis is not driving. So said Curtis is sitting in the middle of the seat. And he says, Houston looks at him, and Curtis shakes his head. Houston takes off down the street. The guy's chasing him, shooting him. So later on, the next day, they find Curtis's body dead, or find him in his truck. 
My buddy Marlon, very well-known comedian, Curtis's cousin, I had to call him and get his side of the story. He said, man, we told the police Curtis was missing. Day later, they find, find his truck. They go to the back of the truck. They look, they don't see him. They don't see anything, but they see like a sheet. They open up the hatch of the truck and move the sheet back. Curtis's body is in there. Three blocks away from him. Remember I said the house where we found where his mother was? Three blocks away from him. And so my whole life was, was shaken because I was asked to speak at the funeral. And I had an opportunity to talk to all the little boys and ran with them to give them a message because it hurt me that he went to that direction, but I knew where he was going. I knew he was big, but I didn't know as big as he was in that game. And so I know that this is a guy who I would have been rolling with because we were always together. But our lives change. And so when I say that we all are chasing something, it's something that we're constantly chasing. But as we're chasing that, we're running away from something else. And I think we then, we then tend to lose what we're running from. And so as I think about my Ubuntu teaching and to make this relevant, I said in the book, have you ever wondered what happened to that one student you let get away, who taught you a lesson greater than anything you ever learned in your pedagogy? who lived in a world that made you question how he was going to survive. That kid who did the right thing in class most of the time, who might have had some hiccups along the way, but the most part made you laugh, told the line, didn't raise too many red flags, except you knew enough about the world he entered when he left school each day to question how he'd be able to continue to navigate as he got older. You knew the statistics about young black men in volatile environments, and you worried, even though you couldn't exactly pinpoint why. And so that story of Curtis was, was hard because when I talked to Houston, I had to call Houston. And what's interesting about Houston, he's lost all his teeth. Um, he left Chicago for a period of time because people thought he had something to do with this killing, and which he actually did not. Uh, but they were trying to kill him as well. And he just tried to get away. And so he said to me, he said, man, Curtis loved you now. He just, you know, you guys are just, you just sort of grew apart. He always said he was proud of what you were doing in those times. It's interesting, as a letter that I have in the book that he wrote me. It was a tight letter. I still have the letter. And, you know, we talked about what, was, what, what, what life could be like. But he sort of went in a different, um, went in a different direction. Uh, the, the chapter called Missing Peace. Don't wait for the world to recognize your greatness. Live and let the world catch up. This particular chapter, The Missing Peace, um, is about a journey that I took on a Native American reservation in Arizona. It was probably the one time I ever really felt intimidated. I spoke to people all over the globe, but never stepped on a Native American reservation. So I didn't know what to expect at all. Then I asked him to take me to three places before I spoke. Take me to a school, take me to the jail, then take me to a school board meeting. And I went to all three of those places. I said, these jokes are just bad as black folks back in Baltimore. And I was cool with my speech once I saw what was going on. But what was interesting, when I went to the prison, um, what I love, even in the prison on the res, they still allow them to do their rituals. So if you know anything about the American Reservation, they still allow the sweat, the sweat lodges inside of that. Um, but the sad part was going to this, so the, the, 
nation is one of the largest nations. They're not a tribe called the uh, Tohondo Alta Nation. And they go from Arizona to Mexico all the way to Canada. And but what's sad about it, they, they border Mexico. But what's sad about it is that they have these, these patrols who are right there while you're going in and out. And the, and the Native Americans hate these people because this is their protected land. But they have somebody who's right there checking people in and out. And so when I, when I went to this reservation, it really taught me a lot about myself, a lot about people. And what's interesting, I met a young lady. For those who don't know, for the last seven years, I worked with the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation. And every year we give a thousand scholarships to black, African-American, Native American, Asian Pacific Islander, and Latino kids. And I met a girl on this reservation. It, it, when you get this Gates scholarship, you get a blank check to go to any college you want to. Any college. And this little girl decided she wanted to go to a community college. So I had to have a meeting with her to say, and if you know anything about Native American culture, almost like Latino culture, it's, it's about we don't want you to go too far, we don't want you to leave. And so the folks on the res didn't want her to leave, but I said, you got a blank check to go to any, when you, did, when you are a Gates scholar, you have a scholarship for 10 years, undergrad all the way to your PhD. And so I sat down with her, and I said, I understand your culture, I understand why your people want you to stay. I said, but you have something greater that you can go and get and eventually come back. And because of our conversation, she wound up going to NYU and then coming back to work on the reservation. But it was, it was a valuable lesson uh, that I learned. A lot has changed for you and I, but one thing is still true. We are connecting this in a strange way that keeps pulling us back together with the force we can't fight. So in conclusion, uh, this is one of my favorite prayers by, uh, from the prayers of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, where there's hatred, let me so love, where there's injury, pardon, where there's doubt, faith, and where there's despair, hope, where there's darkness, light, and where there's sadness, joy. And so I, as I begin to wrap up this book, I want to begin how we close, I mean how we start. Just yesterday, Mosiah asked me one of his famous questions. A question that I realized in all my years of teaching, nobody has ever asked Bob, why did you become a teacher? I had to pause for a minute, minute and I'm going to say is he asked me this question on the way into his favorite place. It's a video game show. Y'all probably got kids in a video game show I'm talking about. What video game show I'm talking about? GameStop. He stopped me in the parking lot. I said, before we go, I got a question for you. So I had to pause for a minute and ask myself the question, why did I become a teacher all those years ago? Why have I remained in education? No matter how winding the path has been, I always wanted to become a lawyer, so what happened? Well, mostly, I replied, here's the thing. As a lawyer, I might make over $100,000 a year. But what if as a teacher, I could help make 100000 in my lifetime. That seemed to satisfy him in the moment, but I knew that there was more to it than that. And if I'm honest with myself, as I said at the beginning, we destroyed so much as boys. We were smart and hopeful, but we were also at times destructive in our younger years. I caused my mother and a lot of people who loved me a lot of grief. Chaos by nature tears down and decimates. At some point, I realized, though, that I need to start all over again. I hear my son's voice so loud and clear as I consider how to wrap up this book. 
as I figure out what the last words would be and where I want the stories to end. What I've been able to tell and what I've somehow left out. As I wonder whether I've shared enough or too much, and as I question what I missed along the way, and I see his eyes so filled with wonder looking up at me, asking me, Father, can you tell me a story about when you were a boy? So here you go, Mosiah. I haven't gotten everything right so far in this thing called life. Not by a long shot, but I hope I've shown you that there's a way. And so this is my crew, the Chaos Crew, and this is one of the songs from the soundtrack. I just want you guys to listen to this and uh, take some questions. Oh, we want peace. Oh, we want wisdom. We got a right to that at least. We got a right to that at least. Yeah. Uh -huh. Look, I ask for peace. I ask for wisdom through the pain. The struggle taught me whether the storm when it rains. So I will answer any questions if you guys have any questions. Um, but before before I wrap up, um, I want to introduce you guys to a, a new project that I'm doing. If you guys saw some of these flyers, uh, I am so excited, uh, sort of taking my work with chaos and the work that I'm doing across the country. Work with a group of black and Latino boys in Baltimore, and we're screening the movie tomorrow called Beyond Stereotypes, the very first Baltimore screening. I just want to show you guys just a clip of some of the young boys. As I think about us growing up, this group of black and Latino and, and Caribbean boys in Chicago, so I found a new crew of boys that I spend my time with and trying to shift the direction. So just check this out, then we'll take some questions. It's called the Positive Mugshot Series. You want to notice how many guys are all these mugshots.
and so excellent. All. I just want to help me be a pal, particularly in the Jewish community. We have a lot of people who have a concept of coming along to help heal the world. So, have you done, um, I guess you have in Chicago and elsewhere, for the Jewish community? You know, we have a lot of philosophy, or uh, have you done any? How can we help? Well, I work with Jewish community. I used to, if you can borrow from I used to, I used to work at Beth and Philip, man, at the summer camp, man. That was probably one of my coolest jobs I've ever had. Working with a bunch of little Jewish kids, man. And discovering that, you know, working with that camp, I also grew up, you know, I had a very interesting life. I grew up as a Catholic kid, but also grew up in the nation of Islam. And I discovered that, you know, you know, Islam and Jewish faith, I mean, is very, very similar to the prayers. I mean, you can put them side by side and see it. You know, I think, I think the most beautiful part is continue sharing, sharing the world, like the brother said, of, of this love of hope and prayer and commitment. Uh, and just, you know, I guess really just celebrate each other. The beauty that we all actually have, uh, I think that's probably the best thing that I think can happen in all communities. Uh, and I think the concept that you just mentioned, the concept of Ubuntu, is you know, very, very simple. Very, very simple. Any, any questions about it? Yes, sir. I came a little later, but... Want me to do it all over again? Right? <laughs> 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 you know what you're So, interesting, none of them had children, man. Right. You know what I'm saying? None. Back in the 80s, there was a lot of, well, like you said, kids had kids. Yeah, yeah none, none, of, none of them had any children, man. Not, it's funny. None of them had any children. None of them were actually married at all. So, you did you their legacy. Oh, yeah, you know, and I talk about them because there's an African concept that says when you say a person's name, they never die. Right. And so, every time I do this, I always start out with them, you know, in honor of them. I mean, it was a great guy, man. You know, Andre was sad. My cousin uh, was the last person to see Andre. He came and hugged him. My cousin was going to junior prom. He hugged my cousin Jerry. Next day, that night, Andre was killed. They called me grandma on the phone, like, hey, Dre got killed. Uh, Lori was shot. Out of all three of them, they're the very last one who I said heard me speak. He actually drowned. When you say about that, the, 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 house, the swimming pool he drowned, I never got. I was in Louisville. And I was the one encouraging to buy his house. And I met him by his house. He actually died in that, in that swimming pool in that house. And he and his friend was playing some, some game under the pool, come to find out he had a heart issue, and he wound up drowning. Uh, so, you know, but all four of them were just great. Karoy, a drug deal went bad. Karoy's a light skinned brother when I was in Puerto Rico. A drug deal went bad. He was working for like law enforcement. And he let the guy like, you're police. And they took him out. So they all got that track. Yes. Um, I remember you saying earlier about kids and trauma, and there there weren't a lot of people available to help the children process what they were feeling. My question is, um, how did you how did you deal with your trauma and all of your friends passing away throughout your life? And is and can you speak about the initiative that? Yeah, so mine is constant, constant work. You know, it's a, it's a constantly day to day, like people in a community, one step at a time. Constantly, constantly working on myself. Reading, being around people, sharing their story. Beautiful part is I keep sharing their stories. And the more people, I think, you know, they're more popular and they're that now than they're living because I'm sharing their stories with all these other people. Um, so I, I also wrote another book called Hands Off Strategies Combat Youth Project. When I used to work at Johns Hopkins, the Center for Observation. But what used to hurt me in those meetings with all these researchers, and I'm a researcher too, 
always say empirical data trumps all that other nonsense. I'm like, listen, I was, all the stuff y'all researching, that stuff don't mean nothing. It ain't, it ain't, you can't take this out of the streets and say, well, the data says this, they're going to blow you away. So I, I need to be in that space so to give them, to give them that balance and say, yeah, the research, I mean, that's cool, but we need to talk to people in the streets and see what's actually working. So the school that we started in Hopkins, our Saturday school, uh, we really teach, teach our young men how to code switch, how to code. We do a, do a lot of meditation. The boys I work with in Anne County, uh, we, we created something called the Genius Club. And even these boys here, I teach them how to meditate and be in the moment. But I also understand that you know, when I'm teaching these kids this, uh, that be mindful. Sometimes kids, I want to close their eyes. And I say, eventually we'll get to that. Remind them of a song of Jay Z had a song that I can't call Can I Live? He said, I keep one eye open like CBS. But they're constantly, the CBS symbol is an eye, so they're constantly observing what's around. I said, eventually, hopefully, you'll call both eyes. But, but, I, but I understand this trust factor or lack thereof and trauma. We'll sort of get to that point. So I'm really big in self care, really big into meditation, really big. That's when we started in the beginning about taking a moment aside for Dr. King and really reflect on that. Really big on reflecting about how the day actually is gone and helping boys articulate how they feel because many of the boys don't have that. Like my son is more articulate than I was at his age because he has sisters around who you gotta be around him, you gotta out, be able to out talk to each other. So we, we have to prepare him in the room like, yo, you gotta come in this world with two sisters, man, you gotta be prepared. And so, I, you know, helping him with his vocabulary is very, very important. Any other questions? Yeah. So, uh, so a couple things, my brother. Of course, I really, really enjoyed the presentation. Thanks. We've known each other for a couple of, uh, a couple of years now, and uh, I didn't know some of those stories, man, so it was really powerful internet. Um, we ain't talking about this all the way driving. We got eight hours. We ain't talking about chaos in the car. Eight hours, nine hours driving. What are you talking about? Nine hours. And I'm listening to some good hip hop. One other point, real quick, and one question. When you tell a story just now about the reservation in Arizona, about the three places you had to take it, the school, the prison, I thought the third one was the restaurant too, because you like to eat too. But the question is that, you know, we just recently had the uh, confirmation um, with the United States and the Department of Education, and, um, you know, very, very controversial pick. Um, confirmation was up to go the other way. Um, so we talked about education, especially those who are working in the community, et cetera. What would you say, like, if, if that was you right now, U.S. Uh, Secretary of Education right now, what, what are, like, top two or three things that you would put in place right away to sort of address some of these educational inequalities, systematic inequities, et cetera? What, what, would, you, what would you say? I think, firstly, early literacy, man. You know, because we know the research, third, fourth, grade reading levels determine how many prisons that they're going to build based on black and brown. That's why I focus on this area. But that early, you know, early literacy getting young people, this whole reading by reading by nine, so my son was reading way before that. So we're a little late, you know, reading by nine, reading by eleven. So the early literacy rate, um, you know, I think it's, it's very, very important. But then also empowering parents, I think, you know, most school districts do much better when parents are actually involved. And I don't think we give parents enough uh, the skill to support them enough uh, to be there. Uh, but then also again. Parents need to be in the buildings, talking to teachers. You know, don't let schools raise their children. Um, but then also being culturally aware. You know, Hakeem Adabudi, one of my mentors out of Chicago, you know, uh, black class of federal press, he says, you know, you can learn a lot about people. Three things in that. When you walk in the house, look at the artwork on the wall. Yes. 
He said, look at y'all work on that wall. If y'all work is not reflective of the people, then that's an issue. That's the one thing. He said, look, the books on the shelves, if the books on the shelves are not reflective of the people in the house, then that's an issue. Now, another place he goes, the, the, the black, in particular, black folks might like, have a conversation. He said, open that refrigerator. He said, now you open that refrigerator and you see all that unhealthy food, then you understand why, why, the, why the books are nonsense and why the artwork is nonsense because they put the wrong stuff in their body. And so again, those things I think are important. But early literacy, you know, making folks culturally aware. And then also, the reality is this. we it would be great to have more people of color teaching, but, I, but folks aren't folks of color are not going to education. They're just not. So 80% of the 70% of the teachers are gonna be white women. That's the battle we gonna we ain't gonna win that battle until we decide to go. So white women, uh, white men need to be culturally aware, not some teaching tolerance workshop and holding hands and you know going through some curriculum and looking at it. You know, it has to be some deep-rooted conversation because you're coming into communities that are very, very not, not similar to where you I came to a program called Teach for America. When I tell folks I can't, people look at me like, man, yeah, I'm like, yeah, but I was, that's, there's a whole chapter in there called why I don't teach for America. To realize why, why I didn't get an award two weeks ago. They brought all the TFA books together. Probably got a little chapter about those jokes. And so, again, um, we just have to be responsible for our own children. But the reading pieces, because, you know, when you look at the reading scores going up, then we look at the level of poverty. You know, the more impoverished a kid is, the less vocabulary words that they actually have. There's research that connects it. So the, the, the better suited the parents can have. Not that the parents need to have college degrees, but it's just talking to your kids about school. And what they discovered that children whose parents are doing well financially, their vocabulary is much greater. And so you know when you're able to navigate throughout the system, it's all vocabulary. That's what hip hop music did, the best MCs. They may not have the best record deal, but man, try to meet them on the corner and have a battle, and they'll destroy you because of, because of that vocabulary. And so those issues that were interesting. When she got elected with my good friend Jason Motel from Baltimore, who works with the Trump administration, man, my phone was lighting up like, yo, these are people you know. How do you wind up working with Trump? I'm like, listen, the reality is this. We need folks on the inside with intel, like a swoop sat by the door. I, the people that I know, I trust are in there. I couldn't be in that position, but I trust them enough that they're in there and say, these are the things. My buddy, who I said was just, you know, who has a position there. Essentially, when I interviewed him, he used to keep sharing story with me. He's like, if you decide to leave, please leave peacefully. Because they don't want him to talk about the president and stuff. Because he really loves education. I wouldn't be. I need to be around. You know, people know me. I like to work with people I like. I like to work with people I like. Yes? Some of Jason's hotels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was elected to, well, not he works for. Right. Yeah, yeah. he first opened it up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jason's a good friend. We just had a whole, whole conversation about because people call me like, yo, your man Jason is working for. So I had to call him like, hey, the word on the street. Yeah, he doesn't even scout Yeah, yeah. He's such a long time. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to be there that long. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to be there. So there's no, yes, go ahead. Um, I just want to share with you it was, it's really beautiful to hear you as an African black man talk about your love for African black men that you grew up with. One thing I'm working on now is dealing with the schism that has happened between me and brothers I grew up with and how our own evolution has drawn us apart 
but still there remains the love, but still there's that inability to articulate the love in a healthy manner, or just to let go of past hurt and pain and the trauma. And I realized about two years ago, as I go out trying to empower African black folk, I need to do the work I need within the people I love personally and within my family. And it was beautiful to hear you write about, although you're not with them on a daily basis, but reaching out at times with uh, emotional crisis on past memories, you working and connecting with them. But could you talk about whether or not that was difficult for you. I don't know, some of you grew up, I grew up in a clique like that too with some guys and, 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 um, young, and young women too. And things happened. I guess that time it wasn't always harmony and love between you. But when you reach back now, how can you not deep with that point? Or is it because it's crisis, you just skip by it and don't deal with it? Uh, but does it, is that a chance to deal with that pet? Yeah, so this is not, a, I call this an educational narrative. So it's not a biography, autobiography. It's loosely about my boys. So we don't go deep into like, like when, my, when I started writing this book, I had my boys like, you know, we don't talk about girls and who's with. I'm like, oh, this ain't that type of book. <laughs> it ain't that. Because then it would have been like some, because you know, it would have been, been an issue. So it wasn't this type of, let's talk about the girls we stayed and what we used to do wrong and all the legal stuff, it really wasn't about that. But having to call them to have these deep conversations was kind of hard because you talk to the sister talking about trauma. You know, one thing we know about trauma is that when you ask people those questions, you're opening up those wounds again. You're opening up these wounds. And, and I started pulling back these layers and having conversations with some of these brothers who were dealing with some stuff that they never talked about. Like one of my buddies, Rich, who, um, I, I, I got this, the high school I went to the first one, I, I was kicked out because I was asked to leave. I always say campus school, you get I wasn't kicked out, I wasn't judging, I just couldn't come back. Um, but my boy Rich was like, I would never send my son to De La Salle. De La Salle is a very prestigious school. It's basically Calvin Hall. It's Calvin Hall in the hood. Mayor Daly went there, Brian Dunn went there, Daly's father, I mean, very prestigious school. But those other folks, not for us. We just have to be there and open the prayer. And Rich was like, man, I would never send my son to do this out. And I was like, why? So he started telling me all the, Rich, they from Jamaica, all the pain that they put his mother through. And he said, man, the way they used to treat my mother, he said, I would, and it blew me away, because this dude could clearly send his kid anywhere, because he's doing well, but he never, he never had that story, he never shared that story with us. Why? He thought, you know, he thought everybody loved Dina Sal. He's like, man, I would never send him because of how they treated my mother. And most parents don't go back to schools because of how their parents were treated or how they were treated when they were younger. And so, you know, it was hard pulling back some of those layers, you know, and, and then you're going to have this, 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 this feeling of, of, of everybody ain't going to be happy that she writes. There's this level of jealousy. So then I have to sort of, as Lupe Fiasco say, who's from Chicago, I'm going to have to dumb me down. Like, I don't want to be the center. Because anybody can be the center of attention. But, uh, attention, I'm trying to, I want to celebrate the thing is, I want to celebrate the beauty of black and Latino and Caribbean boys in Chicago who made it. That's a celebration enough. That we come from all these different hues, races, and 
did all this crazy stuff, hopping on the L, jumping on the back of the bus, beating up folks with coats, going to projects. I don't know what we're thinking about. Going into projects. Catholic school boy, going to projects, trying to get my jacket. I don't know what we thought we were doing. And so again, it, it taught me a lot about manhood. It also taught me the beauty, if you call it to add a little further. Most of us didn't have dads. So coming to see you at a play, you didn't expect to look out of the audience and see your father. You saw me. So you saw me, you on stage, and you gave me like the universal heads up. Or you saw me on the football field, and you, you out there playing, you, looking, you weren't looking for your father. You were looking for us. And you give us a nod, head nod, he was like that. And so that's, that's what our relationship was about, was this, this universal feeling that we actually had that we could not, you know, uh, that I wanted to celebrate. I really wanted to celebrate that. And so what I did, what was interesting, when I did the book signing in Chicago, I brought all the guys up on stage with me. And we sort of did a QA. And, and you know, all the people that knew us, like the girls were out there that knew us, and, and, I, and they, they were looking at us, I was watching them, and I could only imagine, like, what did they think? Did they, you know, did Wiz feel tight? But the girls we roll with, they ain't tight no That's a whole other conversation. Like, they, they are tight. And what's interesting about one of my good friends, we had a girl we called the Posse. What was interesting about her as we got older, when she started sharing, after she read the book, she started sharing the stuff that was going on with them that we didn't really know, that they didn't articulate, lack of fathers, you know, sleeping around, all this other stuff that we didn't really know about that really affected them. And she said that really helped me to pull that out. We had like two sets of girls that didn't like each other. One set of public school girls, one set of Catholic school girls. And you could never bring the two of them in the same space. It was some, it was some nonsense. And so I didn't write about that because that would take me somewhere else. But I wrote about the pain that we, that we sort of felt. Because we, we were losing people left and right. And I mean, they were dropping. They were dropping. And so it was just a way to celebrate that. So I thank you guys. Uh, for, I want to thank you guys for coming out. Introduce my children. You know my wife, Michelle. My wife, Michelle. Okay. Um, and so I thank you guys for coming out. But you can come tomorrow. We're going to be free in the film. It's free. Uh, Brian's going to co-host me with us tomorrow. Bring your kids out. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.